Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer. And she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way. Patients and survivors, caregivers and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire, and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 182 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest this week is Mark Julian. Mark is the CEO of Mark Julian Homes, which is a luxury home builder in South Florida. And Mark is a stage four cancer survivor. And after getting through his treatments late in 2018, made the big decision to put a team together to participate in this year's Ride Across America, which he recently completed. That 3,000-mile cross-country cycling trek began in Oceanside, California, and ended in Annapolis, Maryland, and it was Mark's goal to raise half a million dollars to support childhood cancer research. You can learn more about Mark and his uh, team and his journey via his uh, website, which is R-A-A-M, which stands for Right Across America, R-A-A-M21.com, and also following him on Instagram at R-A-A-M21RIDE. So join me now for my conversation with Mark Julian. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to jump right into the middle of your story. Uh, you know, having kids of my own and now grandkids, you know, thinking and looking at your story, you had a new baby and you talk about top of the world, right? Is there any better feeling than, than a new baby? Yeah. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate in, uh, in pride, that's for sure. And it, as you know, it changes your life completely. You go from being a a selfish guy to uh, just being absolutely enamored by this little thing. This little thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it doesn't matter if it's the you know certainly the first holds its special place, but you know even the ones after that. So you have this top of the world moment going on in your life, and then just a short time later, a cancer diagnosis. What was that like to go from the highest of highs to this to this news? You know, in the in the back of my mind, it, it had been sort of brewing a little bit. I'd, I'd had a tumor that was, uh, or at least some lump in my neck that had been growing for probably three, maybe probably let's say four months or so um, aggressively. In November, I sort of detected it, and then we went into the new year. The doctor thought it was um, it was just maybe some blockage in a salivary gland or something like that. And then as my wife got closer to, to giving birth. In May, um, I kind of switched. It started hurting a little bit, and then I, my mindset just sort of switched. So I said, "Okay, I don't want to know 
if it's something really bad, let's get through the birth, make sure our child's okay, and then we'll confront this head on. And that's what sort of happened. So she was born May 10th. And um, by June 5th, I was, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer in my lymph node and in my uh, tonsil. So yeah, talk about a high. I mean, you're just mesmerized by this new little baby. And, uh, and then they tell you that. And, you know, it's just like in the movies. Literally, they told me I was in my pickup truck. And uh, I just sort of sat there and everything went quiet. And I don't even know what the rest of the conversation was. All I heard was cancer. And the first thing you're thinking about is uh, I'm dead. You know, I just had a baby. And I don't even know if I'm going to be here a year from now to see her do anything in her life. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's catastrophic, right? What was your wife's? reaction was she with you when you got the news no i was at the at the office we we had some difficulty um so right after the baby was born i went and got a biopsy and uh we were about a week in waiting on the results and you can imagine that's the worst part is waiting you know so um i kept calling calling my doctor's like no we don't have them yet we don't have them yet so i just went down to the hospital and i picked them up and um, and then I couldn't read them. I realized that, you know, these medical staff, uh, just being a guy that works in construction, uh, there was no way I was going to get through this and understand what this was. I was trying to Google words and trying to figure out what it was. And uh, so I called a friend who, who had a, another friend that was a doctor in, uh, in Miami, and he was a head and neck specialist. So I sent it to him and, you know, he called me and said, oh, you know, it's it's bad. I mean, it's cancer. And uh, but we're going to cure you and you're going to be OK. And that was sort of the conversation in my truck. I said, can I? come see you tomorrow. And he was like, you know, absolutely come on down. And uh, then I sort of hung up and you have the full meltdown and <laughs> behind the wheel in the parking lot of my office, just losing my mind. And then, you know, I called my wife, she already sort of knew. And, you know, you can imagine she's sort of met with, you know, it's just such disappointment and, uh, and then fear, you know, sets in after that, after your, you know, your tears are over, then you start to really uh, kind of get scared about, you know, what lays ahead and, and what does that really mean? Did you feel this like major shift in your attention from this new bundle of joy to, you know, what the future looks like, or did you still tr try to find a way to be fully in the moment when you were with the baby? That's a great question. Um, I'm assuming it's hard for me to remember. It's really funny. Like I don't remember really um, most, I mean, I remember the treatment and what happened to me, but there's a lot of moments that I sort of, I've forgotten over the four months, I think partially because I had radiation and it might've damaged my, uh, my short-term memory. But, um, I just, it feels like I kind of just blocked it out and my life sort of started again when I, once I went into remission. And, uh, so through that point, I mean, she was there, she came to every single radiation treatment, my daughter and my wife and, uh, all my chemo treatments. So I have you know, pictures that I can't wait to show her in a way that, uh, you know, you were there the whole time, which was really, uh, you know, it not only cheered me up and, and kept me happy, but I think everyone else that was in the, you know, the chemo room and in the radiation, they all love seeing her show up. And she was only a few months old. So it was, it was kind of a, a neat uh, experience, certainly for us to see the, the joy in other people's faces when, uh, you know, you're, you're surrounded by people that are, are relatively gloomy and, uh, and going through some, some pretty bad stuff. So I think that was a pretty exciting part. And I really do truly remember that. Um, the rest of the time is, is, was, you know, it was a lot of sleep and, uh, uh, and some pretty intense pain. Uh, so, you know, I remember feeding her and, and bathing her here and there, but, um, my wife tells me I spend a lot of time with her and, and frankly, I don't, I can't say a hundred percent remember uh, a lot of that. So this is actually back to back episodes that I'm doing with someone who's been through, you know, throat 
related cancer. Tell us what what did it take from a treatment standpoint to get you from a stage four diagnosis to remission where you're at today? The um, so you know, the funny and the, the first thing you start thinking is you know can I fake it and you know how bad is this process going to be? And uh, I own my own business, so I was concerned obviously that uh, I'm the rainmaker, so I've got to meet clients and. I move things forward. So when I met the first doctor in Miami, he told me, listen, it's two weeks and, um, you know, there'll be more treatments, but basically two weeks will be the worst part and then you'll be fine. And da, da, da. so I, I left him thinking, okay, you know, this is, this is okay. All right. Two weeks. I mean, I could say I'm on vacation. So, um, after he was my head and neck specialist, I went and met my radiologist. And, uh, in that meeting, I just sort of sat down and we were chatting and he was talking about what's going to happen and, you know, the, the different procedure that needs to be happen, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, listen, I'm a very straightforward person. I'd really like to know what I'm in for and, and don't sugarcoat things. Like I want you to tell me the worst possible scenario so that I'll work that through my mind. And anything less than that, I'm going to be happy with. And I just don't want these surprises where it's like, oh, yeah, this happens. And oh, yeah, that happens as it's happening. I'd much rather be prepared for it. And uh, so he laid out the next, you know, seven weeks um, of treatment uh, and it, it was terrifying. And at that point, I knew I needed to fire the doctor that was in Miami because I'd asked him the same thing and he told me it was two weeks. This doctor told me, listen, you're not going to be working and it's four months. You're, you're going to be, you know, basically a disaster. You're not going to remember things. You should really, within a month of starting treatment, forget about making any kind of business decisions. And I'm like, holy cow. So, um you know, after soaking all that in and going home and telling my wife, I just realized like this is not going to be uh, a two week scenario. So it was uh, 35 radiation treatments where if, if you're unfamiliar with radiation, uh, they strap you to a board. So when it's in your neck, your, your neck has to be in the exact same location every single time. So they take this sort of mesh, this hot plastic mesh, strap it over your face. And once it cools down, it's basically like a cast that goes on your face, which is then strapped to a table. So you don't move for 30 minutes. You're literally strapped to a table like uh, medieval times and you literally cannot move. And uh, that was absolutely terrifying for somebody who's, well, I'm not a huge claustrophobe, but it was certainly, I have tendencies of claustrophobia. And I mean, you are stuck. You're not moving. You can, you're, I close my eyes. They would put it over my face. And uh, so you do that 35 times. And um, as the, uh, as that happens, you know, week one, it's not so bad. You start feeling a little bit of a sore throat and, Week two gets a little bit worse and you start losing some of the taste in your mouth and you start tasting more sort of metal and, uh, you know, strange sensations like that. Week three, you start getting a, a relatively pretty aggressive sore throat. And then week four is, is uh, excruciating. I mean, you, you, your whole throat goes on fire. And basically I had thrush and I had all sorts of um, infections that came along the way, which were, I mean, unbearable. It was like somebody's pouring gasoline and lighting a flame down your throat every time you swallowed. And so week four and then week five gets worse and then week six and week seven. So at week seven, you're, you're, the saliva in your mouth turns into basically like molasses. So you can never clear your throat. So you're constantly trying to clear it and it won't come out. If you spit it out, it just sort of hangs there. And uh, so the worst part about that is not so much living with it. You have a bottle you're trying to spit into and stuff like that. But it's really when they strap you to the table for half an hour, you start freaking out because you think you're going to choke while you're under this mask and they can't, you know, they can't just stop the machine, open the door and run in it. it there's probably what seems like probably five minutes. It probably only takes them 30 seconds to get there. But it was, it was terrifying that whole time I would spit out and clean my throat as best as I could. And then jump on the table, they'd strap me down and fire up the machine, get, get me through the process. 
and get me off the table as fast as I could. So that the radiation was um, was horrendous. I mean, the side effects to that were uh, beyond anything. Uh, Dr. Williams told me, you know, if it was in your chest that you wouldn't even feel it, but because it's in your throat. And I just had a tonsillectomy to remove one tonsil because they thought maybe there was cancer in that side. So my, my throat was a mess. And uh, thankfully, they convinced me to get a, a feeding tube because after week four, I, I stopped eating through my mouth and uh, was injecting myself uh, into my stomach, which was a whole other, um, I mean, just a, it's just amazing. <laughs> it's, when I think back upon what I had to go through, it was just, it's horrendous. And anybody that's ever had a feeding tube knows what it's like. I mean, it's just, it's the worst possible uh, scenario that uh, you could go through. So you lose tons of weight, you're emaciated, you're tired. I wasn't crazy about painkillers, so I, I was eating, um, you know, extra strength Tylenol, probably about 30 of those a day, and uh, just to try to reduce the pain a little bit. And um, and then you, you start chemo. So through that whole process of radiation, you start going to chemo, and um, and that's a whole other, you know, a whole other punch in the face. For me, it wasn't, it wasn't horrendous. The chemo made me lose a little bit of hair and stuff like that. It makes you super tired. It was really the radiation was just unbearable. I mean... Halfway through that, I was thinking like 25 of 35. I mean, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to go anymore. It was just so, so horrendous and so dark, you know, and your life is just laying in bed and, and spitting stuff up, not eating your stomach's killing you because you can't eat enough food and enough calories and you're losing weight. And it's just, uh, man, having never known, I mean, I knew a few people that had cancer, but never really being in touch with what happens. Uh, I look at my wife, I think she's a hero for, um, you know, helping me through that process. Cause I know it was tough on me, but I can only imagine what it was like for her to, to watch somebody go through it. Um, just, just brutal, brutal process. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the, we have cancer show. As always, thank you so much to Lee for providing this awesome opportunity to spread more awareness for our campaign kids. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brody Nicholas and I have the honor of leading campaign one at a time. This month, we are sponsoring Thiago, a four-year-old cancer patient from Hacienda Heights, California. Thiago is super charismatic and quite the goofball. He's currently battling stage four Wilms tumor of the left kidney and has gone through chemotherapy, radiation therapy, port implants, biopsies, and has even had his left kidney removed. After all he's been through, we want to help Thiago and his family make more memories together outside of the hospital. That's why we're on a mission to raise $10,000 this month to send Thiago and his family to Disney World for a much-needed vacation. You can learn more about Thiago's campaign and learn how you can help by visiting wehavecantorshow.com forward slash Thiago. Thank you so much for listening and helping make more dreams come true for kids like Thiago. Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. How did she manage multiple caregiver duties? Because in addition to being a mother with two little ones, and now she's got you too. Right, insane. And just awesome. She's a, she's a very, very strong woman. We were only, we were, well, we were two years or a year and a half into our marriage. And uh, she was, uh, I mean, just a, a real trooper. Just, I, I, it's just mind boggling. I mean, I was useless for so long and she was doing everything, walking the dogs and, taking care of a baby and taking care of a big baby. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a big mess for, you know, a good solid four months. Did the process change you. Oh yeah. I mean, I tell people cancer is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I know it sounds crazy, but the person I was prior to, to being diagnosed is a person I don't even recognize anymore. 
I was moving so fast, uh, enjoying very little, thinking I was enjoying things, but really not really truly enjoying them and just flying along through life and always looking for the next, the next, the next, the next. Uh, I'm a much more you know patient person. I'm far more engaged with my friends, my family, with my wife, with my kids. I'm, I'm 100% a much better husband and uh, and father having gone through this than uh, than I would have been had I not experienced this entire thing. I mean, my life, my priorities are completely changed, and uh, it's really it's amazing. It's unfortunate that you have to go through something like this, so catastrophic, to sort of shake your head and, and wake you up, but. Um, yeah, it's a blessing in disguise that that it happened to me because I'm I'm so much happier. Has it impacted your your business? Yeah, every I mean, it's impacted my entire entire life. The funny thing was with my business, I was not a micromanager, but I was certainly involved with a lot of the decision making process. And so, um, after meeting Dr. Williams and him telling me, you know, things are going to be pretty rough, I started to figure out how am I going to, you know, sort of allocate different tasks to certain people, and oh my God, what's going to happen? And you start thinking about all these different scenarios. And uh, my team at my office were spectacular. I handed over literally everything, and uh, you know, everything got done. Things got done well, and now I haven't really taken back any of those duties, which is fantastic. So I've been able to take on a whole new role. Uh, within my company, which is which is really cool to see everyone has sort of stepped up and, and continued to do that. And I'm doing different things now, which is um, really awesome. So, it was, uh, you know, again, had that not happened, I probably never would have loosened the reins and uh, probably would have been still doing the same thing I'm doing. It's amazing. So you've come through hell and back, right? And let's call it what it is. And now you want to make a difference. Talk about your nonprofit Right. So during during uh, treatment, you're you're looking for some sort of silver lining, and um, you know you spend a lot of nights awake uh, looking at your phone and googling things. And so I just started thinking about you know how lucky I was to have my wife and my support of my family and my mother, and I had all these people in my life. And at times I would go to you know get chemo. That's seven hours. You sit in a chair, so you get to see a lot of people come and go. And um, you know you would see people come alone, and see you know Uber drivers come to pick up people, and so I just started thinking about, you know, how can I help these people that are going through cancer all by themselves? And, uh, and then that sort of led me to start looking at, you know, what, what cancers are the most prevalent, which ones are uh, the most lethal, you know, who really needs help out there within cancer and, and what can I do um, to make that, uh, you know, my mission for the rest of my life. And um, I, I started looking into children and it sort of struck me as I was reading some information on it that there are only 10 cancer drugs that have ever been created just for children, which when I read that, I said, that doesn't make sense. This can't be right. So I kept reading and reading and reading. And, uh, and then I, I found out that only 3% of the government's cancer research money goes to children. And so you start thinking like, well, how is this possible that all these drugs that we're putting into children are all adult drugs where we have, you know, a baby formula for babies. We have special soap for babies because their skin is so sensitive. But when it comes to actually giving them chemo or any other kind of medication, we give them adult doses or not even doses, but we give them adult drugs that aren't even catered towards children who have organs that are developing. And I just started looking at that. I was like, this is crazy. It makes absolutely no sense to me. It's the number one killer um, through disease in children. And yet there's nothing going on. I mean, they're fighting for every single dollar. They have 10 drugs. The, the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation is working right now to put their 11th drug into uh, clinical trials. But I mean, they're, 
they're still quite a ways away and the money they're just like they're begging for money everywhere and you just start reading it and i said this makes no sense it, there's got to be something that can be done to one change the, the way the government's working uh is a long-term process and you start learning about lobby groups and i'm not going to bore you with it but basically you understand after you start reading the mechanics of how it all works is big pharma is going after those government dollars because they're free and uh, they have huge lobby groups to to go after them and big pharma doesn't spend money on children because there's you know there there are 16,000 or so kids a year that are diagnosed with cancer and there's no money in it so the real money is in treating the adults you know the industry is 150 billion dollars a year to treat people with cancer and kids just you know don't make the cut because there's not enough money in it so um, long term that'll be a goal but I started looking at that. I said, you know, what do we have to do? And we ended up hooking up with the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And they have a program they're putting together right now um, specifically for children to try and get doctors to talk to each other and find out what they're doing and what treatments have worked for them. Uh, so they're creating this large database. And then, I said, uh, like I said, with the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation, um, they're trying to get this 11th drug through. And uh, so I just said, I, I got to do something with that. And then I decided that I should combine it with something that makes me feel, um, you know, that I'm back and I'm better than I was before, certainly through the whole process and having talked to other people that goes with cancer, the, the fear is that you're never going to be the same again and that somehow it's going to modify you and you won't be able to do what you want to do and you won't be able to achieve what you want to achieve. So I was just looking online and I found the Race Across America and I said, you know, that sounds like something completely stupid and, and worth trying. <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided I'm going to do it. As soon as I went into remission, uh, I told my wife I'm thinking about it. And then a month later, I said, I'm doing it. And uh, I had no idea how I was going to find seven other people that would want to do that because I wasn't uh, an avid cyclist uh, by any stretch. And um, I just started slowly but surely piecing it together. And here we are. We're where are we seven, just a little over seven weeks away from uh, the uh, tackling the race. And uh you know, we got a whole team of 20 people and we're, we're ready to go. Wow. What does it take to prepare? So give us the details. Where are you starting? Where are you ending? How long is it? All right. So the race across America is considered the world's toughest bicycle race. So it's not a ride. It's an actual race. And we go from Oceanside, California, nonstop, 24-7 across the country, all the way to Annapolis, Maryland. So we go up all the way through Colorado, and then we go basically straight across uh, the country to Annapolis, where we're an eight-man team, but they have uh, solo solo guys who, who do it by themselves, which, frankly, I don't even know how they do that. Two-man teams, four-man teams, and then eight men. And um, so we're eight cyclists. Uh, five of us are cancer survivors. The other three have been through uh, cancer through their family, and frankly, what they've seen with cancer, it makes them a survivor as well, as I consider my wife is a cancer survivor, even though she hasn't had it. Um, and then we have 12 crew that, uh, support us, um, for the ride. And we basically go 24 seven. I mean, it's a relay race. So you, you ride as hard as you can for 15 minutes. And then the next person goes and you go nonstop until you get to the other side of the country. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm right. trying to Our take that in. Five and a half days. That's uh, that's the goal. How many we'll days? Five and a half. Five and a half. Wow. Well, actually at the time that this, um, recording comes out, you will, God willing, have safely arrived in Annapolis, Maryland. Yes, that would be great. Um, but you, know, you said you were not an avid cyclist. So this is obviously not something you're going to fly to California and jump on the bike for the first time. What does it take to 
you know, for you and the team to get ready for such an event like this? So thankfully, uh, I'm the, I'm the least experienced rider on the team. So I was just the, uh, I had the bad idea. Everyone else is, is cycled a lot and they have a lot of experience in endurance cycling. And we have two guys that have actually raced uh, semi-pro in, uh, in the U.S. So they're, they're really well-equipped. Certainly everyone's been training, um, you know, hard for myself. I was coming from a point that I was below, uh, you know, whatever I was. I lost 30 pounds, 15 pounds of muscle. So I, it took me six months just to get back to where I, you know, felt like I could run up a, a set of stairs. And then, uh, you know, you train. Yeah, I got a coach. I have a, a coach in the uh, the gym. And then I had a, got a, I needed a nutritionist to get my stomach back to where it was, having not even realized that um, swallowing that many Tylenol for that long of a period would destroy your stomach and uh, all the enzymes and all the bacteria, it would, all got nuked. So we had to, you know, re-basically establish everything in my stomach in order to get me to a point where I could actually eat uh, the foods that I need to eat to have the, the power to actually uh, ride a bike for so long. And then just slowly, it's amazing how when you first start, you think, oh my God, you know, you go for a 10 mile ride and you're like, whew. You know, that was a tough one. And then it's 20 miles and then, you know, it's 25 and 30. And, you know, now I'll go for a four hour ride and it doesn't seem like it's that long um, out on the road. You're kind of like, oh, it's almost over. That's great. You know, um, but, it, you know, it's a long it's it'll be two and a half years by the time we get on the bike. Then, uh, you know, I started you know moving towards uh, this goal. So it takes a, a lot of determination and certainly just the thought of, um, you know, why we're doing it is is uh, motivation enough that. You know, I can't say every morning I'm jumping out of bed and excited. So certainly that's the extra push to, you know, get me off my uh, <laughs> off my mattress and into my cycling gear and on my bike. Do you ride every day in preparation? I ride uh, I ride four days a week, so I'll do two hour, three two hour rides during the week, and then one you know four to four and a half hour ride on uh, Saturday. I take Sundays off, and then I'm in the gym uh, two days a week, lifting weights. How you feeling? feel great. I feel, you know, as ready as I'm going to be, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. So certainly had I known uh, just how much work this was going to be. And frankly, I can't take credit for putting the team together. The logistics of uh, all of this is really, we found an amazing crew chief who has um, years of experience doing it. And um, without him, without Paul, I mean, we would be dead in the water. Just the idea, if you can imagine, so it's 20 people. So you split into two groups so you're four riders, six crew, four riders, six crew. You have multiple vans, motorhomes, and everything is moving 24 hours a day at, at, you know, 20 to 25 miles an hour. And so people are stopping, trying to sleep and catching up and switching out riders. I mean, it's, it's a logistical uh, dance that um, I, I had no idea. I didn't even think about, like, how complicated that would be, frankly, when I decided, like, let's do it. At first, I figured I got to find the riders. And once I find the riders, then hopefully we'll find uh, a... Uh, an actual crew chief. And from there, we'll try and find some crew. And uh, I mean, Paul has done so much, you know, we posted a little, a little blurb on uh, Facebook on the rampage said, listen, I'm a cancer survivor, and I'm looking for a crew chief. And I'm looking for seven other guys that want to do it with me. And then, you know, slowly but surely, people found a place, some people have come and, you know, have fallen off. And we've replaced them with other people. And, you know, here we are, it's a uh, it was a huge commitment. I'm so shocked that uh, these guys have stuck around and everyone's really, I mean, they're gung ho to do it. And it's just, it's so amazing to think that uh, it could all just come together. We'd never even met I, until March. I met five of them in person. Prior to that, it's all been on Zoom. And we have a guy in the UK and two in Arizona, one in Texas, uh, uh, Nashville, uh, one in uh, Georgia, and then myself down here and another one up in New York. So none of us had ever ridden together or met each other. 
we have no connection to each other other than the fact that um, somebody saw something somewhere and said, hey, you know, I, I'd like to try that, which is really incredible. I imagine that not only do you have to uh, continue to train, but there's got to be some practice on the logistics too. You're not just going to show up and figure that all out on the fly. How does that all work? So the, the crew will never meet until we actually get to California. And, uh, and really they're the, the staple, right? For us, we just have to get on the bike pedal and not fall off the bike and stay on the road. For them, they have to be able to stay awake, get the right bike off the van and get people in front of us and food and gas. And I mean, they have so much to think about. So we're going to practice a few times in, uh, in California a few days before we start. And, and that's about it. But thankfully, we've had, again, we have a crew chief who's done it, assistant crew chief in the UK, who's brought on some uh, crew members, and he's been coaching them over in the UK before they come over. And so everyone's been walked through a bunch of stuff. But I'm assuming day one will be, uh, you know, a learning experience, and day two will get a little smoother. And by the time we're done on, you know, day five or day six, we're going to be a, a lean, mean machine. <laughs> what do you have? Have you set a, a financial goal in terms of fundraising? The, the goal is to raise 500000 I'm the type of guy that, uh, you know, I'd like to set massive goals. And if we get halfway there, I'm, I'm ecstatic. So at this point, I think we're around 180 something thousand. So we're, we're super, I mean, I'm excited with that. I think it's awesome. And uh, if we can keep generating more money, it would be great. Whether, you know, 25 bucks or five grand, it makes no difference. We just want people to want to understand and, and make people aware of, you know, childhood cancer, pediatric cancer, and the fact that there's such a lack of funding for, for research and, uh, you know, as humans, we're creatures of habit and creatures of, unless I'm facing it, I don't really have to deal with it. And like, what is it really, you know, how does it really impact me? And the reality is like cancer is not something that you can foresee happening. So if you had a child and I, you know, uh, I asked somebody, you know, if you had a kid and I told you in two years, your kid was going to get cancer, how much would you donate? And he goes, well, I'd mortgage my house. I'd do this, I'd do that, blah, 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 right? But uh, if it doesn't impact me directly, then you kind of, people sort of go, wow, you know, here's a hundred bucks. But the reality is, and I know it, I never thought I was going to get cancer, like ever. I mean, it never crossed my mind. I don't have a history of cancer in my family. I mean, it's something that struck us all, boom, and it, here it is, right? And it would be terrifying to uh, for my kids who are small, three and, and four months. Like, if they ever got sick, I would just be, it would be so devastating. And to, to know that they're going to be damaged for the rest of their life, their organs and their their growth, their cognitive reasoning, there's all sorts of side effects from these treatments that they're given. And, uh, it just, it just sort of freaks me. It just freaks me out enough to say like, I got to do something more than just, you know, cut a check for a hundred bucks or 500 bucks. I got, I got to make a serious effort to, to help children that are getting sick. Cause it, there's 43 every day that are told they have cancer. I mean, it, it's a big number. Well, when I saw your story, I had to have you on because I'm one, I'm one of those 43. And, uh, so when I saw what you were doing, I said, yeah, I've got to, got to get Mark on the show and, and, uh, have you share your story. How old were you when you had, you had cancer? I was diagnosed with a Wilms tumor at the age of five. Wow. And then, uh, I've been living with stage four colon cancer for the last 10 years. So it's been part of my life for, for a little while. But, you're a beast. That's awesome. <laughs> 10 years. That's great. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're a machine, man. Every day, you got to make every day special. Oh, right? and, and we do. And we do. That's is awesome. there a way that people can support the effort even post-race or? Yeah, the site will be up even after the race is over. So it's ram21.com. So R-A-A-M-2-1. So the number two and the number one dot com. And uh, you can donate there. We will have a link to that posted in the show notes on the we have cancer show.com 
uh, site for our listeners. Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your your inspiring story. And and uh, not only do I admire you know that that desire to do something post diagnosis that's pretty common uh, from people I've interviewed, but you said you know the fact that you thought of all right you know the natural thing would be how do I donate to the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance let's say. But you went and took it a step further to find that special need that you identified out there to make a difference. And I think that's truly special. And I want to wish you, uh, even though people will be listening to this, the timing is going to be a little confusing to them that we're we're having this conversation late April and the race is in June. But uh, I want to wish you much success and uh, safe ride and all the best uh, to you and the team. Thanks, Lee. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for having us on the show. Be well, my friend. All right. Thank you. The Colon Cancer Coalition has all kinds of wonderful events taking place in the coming months, various ways that you can get out and move, whether it's get your rear in gear with a run walk event or a golf event through the Caboose Cup, uh, tour de tush bike rides. Lots of ways you can support the amazing work that the Colon Cancer Coalition does to raise awareness and fund local organizations that are making a difference in the world of colorectal cancer. You can check out all of their events by going to wehavecancershow.com forward slash CCC for Colon Cancer Coalition. And you can find an event in your neighborhood. Many are taking place in person, but they virtually, all of them have virtual components as well, if that's your preference. So once again, support the Colon Cancer Coalition by going to wehavecancershow.com forward slash CCC. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter.